You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. A shuckworm update. Pegasus spywares found on UK government officials' phones. Gangs succeed when criminals run them like a business. Julian Assange moves closer to extradition to the US. Tim Eads from the Cyber Mentor Fund on cyber valuations. Our guest is Wes Mullins from Deepwatch discussing adversary simulations and a guilty plea in a high profile cyber stalking case. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. As Russia's firepower intensive tactics continue the reduction of cities in the Donbass and along the Sea of Azov, A familiar FSB threat actor returns to prominence in Russia's hybrid war against Ukraine. Symantec this morning updated their research on the Russian threat actor Shuckworm, also known as Armegadon and Gamaradon, and its activities against Ukraine. Shuckworm first appeared in 2014 during Russia's earlier aggression against Ukraine that resulted in its annexation of Crimea, and the group is generally held to be an FSB operation staged from that conquered province. Its principal focus has, since its inception, been Ukraine. Symantec is tracking four variants of the Terado backdoor Shuckworm installs in its victim systems. Installation of multiple versions of essentially functionally equivalent malware is one of the group's characteristic bits of tradecraft. The practice seems to be a crude method of establishing and maintaining persistence. If the defenders find and kick one version, well, there are three others they might overlook. Symantec writes, While Shuckworm is not the most tactically sophisticated espionage group, it compensates for this in its focus and persistence in relentlessly targeting Ukrainian organizations. It appears that Terado is being continuously redeveloped by the attackers in a bid to stay ahead of detection. Symantec adds, While Shuckworm appears to be largely focused on intelligence gathering, its attacks could also potentially be a precursor to more serious intrusions if the access it acquires to Ukrainian organizations is turned over to other Russian-sponsored actors. 
That's not surprising. Developing intelligence is always an early stage in battle space preparation. According to Bloomberg, Ukraine continues to augment its cyber defenses with significant help from domestic and international corporations. The University of Toronto's Citizen Lab reports that it's found multiple infestations of NSO Group's Pegasus Intercept tool in British government devices, specifically in phones used by the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office and the Prime Minister's Office. Citizen Lab blogged, The suspected infections relating to the FCO were associated with Pegasus operators that we link to the UAE, India, Cyprus, and Jordan. The suspected infection at the UK Prime Minister's Office was associated with a Pegasus operator we link to the UAE. Much of the concern about Pegasus in particular, and NSO Group products and services in general, has been their ready abuse by governments who use them against private citizens. The British case is clearly different. The UK government had been prospected by foreign actors presumably engaged in intelligence collection. As far as private citizens are concerned, the European Union has decided not to organize an investigation of such cases, EU reporter says. This is really something for the national authorities, a spokesperson for the European Commission said yesterday. CISA has released six industrial control system advisories. They've also added to the known exploited vulnerabilities catalog. All federal civilian agencies must patch by May 10th. VMware describes a fundamental restructuring of cybercrime cartels thanks to a booming dark web economy of scale. Gangs operate like multinational corporations, and they now engage in more destructive behaviors than before. In particular, the criminal-to-criminal market is thriving, with more commodity tools available, and that's enabled the gangs to scale their attacks quickly and easily. The gangs are also becoming more destructive. The reasons for this are complex. Sometimes victims' files are destroyed in an apparent attempt to dispose of evidence. Sometimes destruction serves as revenge for victims' failure to comply with the criminals' demands and as an incentive for future victims to be more cooperative. WikiLeaks impresario Julian Assange is now closer to extradition to the U.S., CNN reports, where he faces espionage charges. After receiving assurances from U.S. authorities that Mr. Assange would be decently treated while he's tried in the U.S. and afterwards, should he be convicted, the high court overturned an earlier magistrate's court decision blocking the extradition. His extradition now goes to Home Secretary Patel for approval, but Mr. Assange still has an appeal left in his quiver. And finally, Reuters reports that James Bao, eBay's former senior director of safety and security, has taken a guilty plea in a very strange federal case of cyber-stalking. While he was at eBay, Mr. Bao has admitted he organized a campaign of harassment against e-commerce bites, a mom-and-pop newsletter run from Natick, Massachusetts, that Mr. Bao perceived as critical of his then-employer. The newsletter's content always struck us as fairly neutral and anodyne, only moderately and politely critical, and not at all a threat to the online auction behemoth eBay. Apparently, the motivation came from some will-no-one-rid-me-of-this-troublesome-priest complaints expressed by two executives, including then-Chief Executive Officer Devin Wenig, 
who's also left the company. According to Reuters, prosecutors said the Steiners in August 2019 began receiving anonymous harassing private messages on Twitter and disturbing deliveries to their home that also included fly larva, spiders, and a funeral wreath. Five other eBay staffers have also taken guilty pleas to other charges arising from the incident. Mr. Wenig has not been charged. He says he had no idea of what his subordinates were up to in and around Natick in both physical and cyberspace. Before we wrap up, thanks for reading and listening, especially this week. It's our sixth anniversary as an independent company. For the past six years, the CyberWire has delivered your daily dose of the top cybersecurity news, and we're pleased to have become a trusted source for the industry. To celebrate our big six, and as a special thanks to all of our CyberWire listeners and readers, for one week we're offering a discount of 60% in annual subscriptions of CyberWire Pro. Use code CyberWireAnniversary2022 by April 25th to take advantage of this celebratory discount. Subscribe and save now. But above all, thank you for listening to The CyberWire. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. These days, many organizations approach security with an assumed breach mindset, considering when, rather than if, an attack will happen. I recently checked in with Wes Mullins, CTO at MDR security company DeepWatch, on the utility of adversary simulations and red teaming. The best way today is, you know, set up a lab. There's a lot of a lot of open source tools and platforms out there that will allow you to, you know, quote unquote, break things in your home lab on the internet without worrying about 
you know, doing anything nefarious or coming off as, as malicious in nature on the internet. Uh, you gotta, you gotta practice though, uh, the skills and techniques that are used in offensive security and, and breach simulation, whether it's red team, purple team, blue team, um, they are very practical in nature. There's no book that you're going to take or an exam that you're going to study for that's going to really give you that. Uh, it's, it's practice and practice makes perfect. Can you sort of walk us through how, how an internal team would go about this? What a, a typical uh, process would look like? Yeah, I would say it's standing up a lab um, and then having the lab kind of devised in multiple subsets of, you know, web app, which is where a lot of people typically get their feet wet, uh, breaking into web apps, doing, you know, basics with session state handling, user supplied input validation, um, and then going more into the, what I would call the the in-depth um, exploit development, reverse engineering, and kind of having different pillars and, you know, saying, hey, you, you go solve this challenge. And once you solve this challenge, then you get another challenge. And, and that will vary across whether it's web app or reverse engineering, exploit development, and then every, everything that is, you know, red teaming, traditional pen testing in the middle, including brute force and social engineering and all of the alike. Is there a cultural element to this as well? I mean, I, I suspect it's it's important to make sure that your various teams don't inadvertently end up adversarial with each other. Uh, there is, but that's also part of the fun. I would say is, um, and done right, there are a lot of opportunities to build the rapport and build the relationships with those teams. And you know, it does very much become a, a purple team exercise where you have the uh, the the ones emulating the adversaries and doing the offensive campaigns, also challenging the ones responsible for identifying and mitigating those those attacks. Uh, successfully done, like it is a great thing to do inside of an organization that just pushes everyone's boundaries every single day and allows them to grow and mature. And how do you make sure that the the things that are found are actionable? That that there's follow through. That you know the things that the 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 vulnerabilities are are being fixed. Um, I guess what I'm getting at is I, it would be frustrating for your red team to come up with all these things and and nothing to be done afterwards, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a great great call out there. I, I think the key thing is when you do these exercises, what has been identified, make sure it goes through a very traditional process on identifying criticality, impact, and severity. And then throwing in the queue along with everything else, whether that's regular bug fixes or feature enhancements or anything, um, making sure that there is a path to remediation one of the key aspects in that, though, is validate, validating that it is, in fact, a issue. Uh, something that we commonly see or, you know, spray and pray from a slew of, you know, pen test and red team providers that are out there. And it, a lot of it's very theoretical. Um, if you can't prove it, you can't provide a screenshot, you can't reproduce the scenario in a live situation, uh, that's going to make it really hard for the team on the back end that's then being tasked to go remediate it. So make sure that your findings are legit. Make sure they can be repeated and, and validated at scale. Do you have any words of wisdom for organizations that are, are looking to spin up something like this? I mean, are, are there any uh, areas where people usually fall short? I would say the the labs. Uh, a lot of people want to, they hire the the red teamers, the purple teamers, the the offensive capabilities, the adversary emulators, and they don't give them the same lab that, you know, would be your internet presence. So if you want someone to really be valuable at it and provide the value that we all know that, you know, adversary emulation can provide, invest in giving them something to break. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying give them a blank check, but make sure that if you have something that's on the internet, that's very critical to you, whether it's your e-commerce platform or, or something you're handling payroll or, or transactions, 
And there are a bunch of different components around identity and database and store and cloud. That individual or that team of individuals that's being responsible for doing that exercise should have, you know, a lab or a testing environment or development environment that is 100% a clone of that. And that is where we will see people struggle is they don't necessarily give the the group that has, you know, the, the challenge of going and spotting these these issues inside of a what is in most cases a very complex, you know, mature enterprise environment. And that's where you find you find gaps. How do you measure success? How do you evaluate, you know, the, the return on your investment here? One could say, you know, you're you're doing it faster than the the bad guys and gals are doing it. I would say success yeah. is as the organization matures out offensive capabilities, are there findings? Are you finding something internally before it is found by a third party that you're paying, in most cases, thousands of dollars or through a bug bounty program? So if there are findings and there are actual remediation you know, steps that need to happen from quarter to quarter, month over month, after the exercises are done, I would consider it a success. That's Wes Mullins from DeepWatch. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Tim Eads. He's the CEO at VArmor and co-founder of the Cyber Mentor Fund. Uh, Tim, it is always great to welcome you back to the show. I want to touch today on cyber valuations, uh, obviously something that you work on a lot with the Cyber Mentor Fund. Can you give us some insights, some of the things that you're tracking when it comes to cyber valuations in today's environment? Yeah, thanks, Dave. Um, so last year, you saw this incredible growth of cybersecurity investing and crazy valuations. Companies were getting funded with 2 million annual reoccurring revenue at $1.7 billion. And you know you have to grow into those shoes and they're really big shoes. And so what you find is people are, were investing in growth or growth opportunity and were just throwing money at it as there was so much money in the system. But there's a number of challenges with that. One is if you take, if you make one misstep in your execution, you're going to look at it as a down round. And a down round is one thing, but when down round when you're dealing with billions of dollars is crushing. The, another one turns out is that any of the employees that come after those crazy valuations will almost certainly make no money because they have to go into so many into those shoes before they do another, another round of funding. So I actually think, you know, those things are bad. And then the third one, a lot of these valuations, again, let's just pick on one where they did $2 million ARR, $1.7 billion. What happens is, is the founding team or the, the CEO and the founding team will be pushed um, by the investors to do, do what's called a secondary. 
to actually take some money off the table, you know, to sell some of their shares in order to keep going. But the challenge with that is it separates the CEO and the, and the founders from the rest of the employees because, you know, they've taken money off the table. They've taken two, three, five, ten million, whatever the number is, off of the table, but nobody else did, right? Unless it was open to everybody. And so then you get an economic separation on, on, of interest between the CEO and the founders and the employees. So multiple things will go bad with that. So, yeah, I mean, it went, it was growth, growth, growth. And then right towards the end of the year, you know, early December to around about now, it's all become operational excellence. You know, when are you going to get cash flow uh, positive? You know, when are you going to, you know, your annual recurring revenue or in your EBITDA to employees and been much more, the, the metrics that people are looking at now are much more operational excellence based. And from that, valuations are down. You saw the public markets, the valuations in the public markets have come down, you know, pretty significantly this year. And you'll typically see the private market valuations come down like six or eight weeks later. So you're starting to see that be affected now every single day. Is this a, a cyclical type of thing? I mean, do, do we see this as, as, you know, to use your words, these crazy valuations and does it, does it swing back and forth? Yeah, absolutely. It swings back and forth. You know, there, you know, this is the year where or at least the first nine months of it will be everybody who's tightening their belt, looking at, you know, cost efficient sales efficiency, business models and things like that to, in order to do it. But, you know, the markets have two sides of their brain, right? Fear and greed. And sometimes they move <laughs> between the two of them really quickly. So greed will come back and, you know, and, and that's how that will go. And then you'll, we'll back down to maybe not quite so crazy valuation, but pretty similar for sure. For the entrepreneur, I mean, is it is it possible to to time this sort of thing? Is there a, is there a best uh, stage of the pendulum to get into? Yeah, well, I, I always... I would stay away. I personally would stay away from the the valuation dynamic as a, a reason uh, of, of when to raise and how much to raise. What I would steer towards is getting the right VC, getting the right investor alongside you is way more important than getting the right valuation. Mm. And so st- steering towards the right, the right partner that's going to be with you through it, because there's always going to be bad times. There's always going to be bad times. And, Getting the right venture person, get the right board member with you. And I always say you should go to the the individual, not the firm, because the individual is the one that's going to be in the boardroom. You know, and, and then focusing on that rather than the valuation. Clearly, you know, raising money when there's a war on, sometimes people would say that's a you know a tougher time. But for cybersecurity companies, when you know, it's a cyber war, at least in part, you know, you want to be in the the cyber defense business. All right. Well, Tim Eads, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. 
Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.